We are Radio Catskill. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, if you reside in Sullivan County, your garbage is currently transported all the way upstate to the Seneca Meadows Landfill in Seneca County. That's New York's largest landfill, and they want to expand, but questions remain over the state's waste future. We'll have a report from the New York Public News Network. One of the ways to reduce the amount of trash going to the landfill is to become a litter leader, volunteer, or sponsor of the Upper Delaware Council's 2024 Upper Delaware Litter Sweep coming up. We'll tell you more with Executive Director of the UDC, Lori Ramey. And the Lunar New Year was this weekend. It's the Year of the Dragon. Our newest intern at Radio Cat Skill, Lane Tang, is a Chinese student at NYU, and she'll take you into her friends' homes to show you how Chinese people authentically celebrate the Year of the Dragon. Plus, Workshop Live. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Israeli military says it has rescued two hostages who were abducted by Hamas last October. Elon Levy is an Israeli government spokesman and says the freed hostages are both older men. Those hostages are in good and stable condition. Everyone in Israel waking up to the very welcome news that the army, in a daring special forces mission, managed to rescue those two hostages from the heart of the Israeli military freed the hostages and fired many airstrikes into Rafah in doing so. Health authorities in Gaza say that at least 67 Palestinians were killed in the airstrikes. Concern is growing over a potential Israeli ground offensive in Rafah. President Biden told Israel's prime minister yesterday that if they move ahead, Israel must have a credible plan to protect civilians. NPR's Cameron Keith reports Gaza is expected to come up as King Abdullah of Jordan visits the White House this afternoon. Jordan is a close U.S. ally in the Middle East with a diplomatic relationship that goes back 75 years. President Biden was actually supposed to visit Jordan for a meeting with Arab leaders in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th Hamas attacks. But the stop was scrapped at the last minute due to an explosion at a hospital in Gaza that prompted three days of of mourning. Now four months into the conflict in Gaza, the White House says Biden and King Abdullah will discuss what a post-conflict Gaza might look like and how to get there, including finding a way to give the Palestinian people a voice and a vote in that process. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The White House says former President Donald Trump's comments about NATO over the weekend are, quote, unhinged. Trump told a campaign rally that if he is re-elected, he would let Russia attack other NATO countries who are not paying enough for membership. NATO Secretary General also condemned Trump's remarks and said allies will stand by all NATO members. Stocks opened mixed this morning amid news of another big oil patch merger. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose about 20 points in early trading. Diamondback Energy says it plans to buy rival oil driller Endeavor Energy Resources in a deal worth $26 billion. The combined company would be the third largest energy producer in the Permian Basin of West Texas and New Mexico, behind ExxonMobil and Chevron, both of which announced their own big acquisitions last fall. Retail gasoline prices have been inching up. AAA says the average price of regular gas nationwide is now close to $3.20 
cents a gallon. That's up about 13 cents from a month ago, but still 21 cents lower than this time last year. The Labor Department delivers its latest report card on inflation tomorrow. The Federal Reserve has said it wants to see more evidence that price hikes are cooling before it starts cutting interest rates. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. For the second year in a row, the Kansas City Chiefs have won the Super Bowl. They beat the San Francisco 49ers in overtime, 25-22. to Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes was selected as the game's most valuable player. The Ivory Coast has won the Africa Cup of Nations soccer tournament. Cote d'Ivoire defeated Nigeria 2-1 to last night to win the championship on home soil. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports... The tournament was watched by more than two billion people around the world. The on-field drama was a fitting end to one of the most memorable editions of this tournament. It's ended in tears for Nigeria, with hosting team Cote d'Ivoire scoring in the final minutes of the game. Nigeria made it to the final for the eighth time and scored first, but Cote d'Ivoire, the comeback kings of this Africa Cup of Nations, came from behind to win by two goals to one. And no one embodied their never-say-die mentality more than star player Sebastian Haller. He was diagnosed with testicular cancer in 2022 and his career was feared over, but returned to football six months after his diagnosis and in this AFCON tournament scored the winning goal in both the semi-final and the final. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News. Lagos. The Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized again, this time for the treatment of a, quote, emergent bladder issue. Austin has transferred duties to his top deputy. Austin was harshly criticized last month. This was for failing to immediately inform President Biden that he had been hospitalized for complications from prostate cancer surgery. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org and the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. If you currently reside in Sullivan County, your garbage is transported to the Seneca Meadows Landfill in Seneca County, New York. Sullivan County has not had its own landfill for approximately two decades. New York State is committed to creating less trash. A new 10-year solid waste management plan provides direction for how the state can reduce waste and avoid landfilling. But some lawmakers and environmental advocates say the plan fails to outline the tangible steps necessary to make good on those goals. From the New York Public News Network, WSKG's Rebecca Redelmeyer visited the Seneca Mills landfill, the state's largest landfill, where this tension is playing out. It's a short, steep drive from the Seneca Meadows office to the top of the landfill. On a cold January morning, trucks full of garbage climb the unpaved road. Yeah, so we're we're on top of the southeast landfill, uh, which was constructed back in the uh, early 2000s. That's Kyle Black. He's the local district manager for Waste Connections, the Texas-based company that owns the site. We're looking, we're looking west. He stands on a towering landfill mound, shaped like a horseshoe and visible for miles around the Finger Lakes town of Seneca Falls. 6,000 tons of trash are dumped here every day, mostly trucked in from across the state. But the operation could cease as soon as next year. The landfill's permit expires in 2025, when its current capacity will be filled. However, Seneca Meadows wants to expand instead. 
The company has asked the Department of Environmental Conservation to allow it to operate through 2040 and fill in the area in the middle of the horseshoe. So this all becomes one big hill. The plan would create 47 acres, or over 30 football fields, of new landfill area and add 70 feet in height to the already existing mounds. That proposal has drawn sharp criticism from some lawmakers and environmental advocates. Assemblymember Anna Kellis is one of the legislators who has called for the DEC to reject the site's application. And there are alternative solutions. We should be prioritizing at this point, you know, diverting things from the landfill that shouldn't be going to the landfill to begin with. Already, the landfill produces leachate, a kind of chemical-laden wastewater runoff, and it emits greenhouse gases, which contribute to global warming. Residents in surrounding areas, including members of nearby Cayuga Nation, have said the site is disruptive to their community. Seneca Meadows, however, says it has the infrastructure to continue to operate under strict environmental rules. It treats the leachate to remove some chemicals, and it captures most of the site's methane emissions to create landfill gas, a kind of renewable energy. But this fight isn't just about the future of the state's largest landfill. It's also about trash in New York as a whole, where it will go and how it might change in the next decade. That's because the state has just released its first solid waste management plan in nearly 15 years, aimed at promoting reuse and preventing landfilling. Kellis says any landfill expansion would be in direct contradiction to that framework. There's language in the solid waste management plan uh, acknowledging that we need to prioritize creating and growing a circular economy. And the first step of that is recognizing that a lot of the things that we send to landfills is only waste because we call it waste. The state's previous waste management plan also aimed to severely cut New York's trash, but it mostly failed. Waste production has barely budged over the past decade, and landfills remain New York's fourth largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. Lawmakers hope that bills pending in the state legislature could make a dent like the bottle bill, which would make more beverage containers eligible for recycling and increase the refund amount. Anne Rabe is the Environmental Policy Director at the New York Public Interest Research Group. She says it's clear what needs to be done. The point is that we need to be phasing out large landfilling as a practice. But the new waste management plan doesn't call for any explicit landfill closures. It's a kind of towing the line that makes Rabe and other advocates worried about whether the new plan will accomplish anything at all. Right now, it's just a piece of paper. But if they were to close Seneca Meadows when its permit expires in 2025, it would make this plan real. That's Yvonne Taylor, the vice president of the local group Seneca Lake Guardian, which has been fighting to close the landfill. But back at Seneca Meadows, the waste continues to be trucked in. And it's unclear where else it would go if the site were to close. The DEC says it reviews every permit application to ensure it meets all applicable standards, including those related to New York's climate and sustainability commitments. The agency will host additional opportunities for public comment before any decisions are made about Seneca Meadows' future. In Ithaca, I'm Rebecca Rettelmeyer for the New York Public News Network. One of the ways to reduce the amount of trash going to the landfill is to become a litter leader as a volunteer or sponsor of the Upper Delaware Council's 2024 Upper Delaware Litter Sweep. Joining us now with more is Lori Ramey. She's the executive director of the Upper Delaware Council. Good morning, Lori. Hi, Tim. Uh, tell us what the uh, the litter sweep is for folks who may not know. It's the fourth annual 
Sure. Well, when we're facing a significant snowfall, it may be difficult for people to wrap their heads around the concept of spring cleaning. (laughs) But if Punxsutawney Phil is to be believed, then we will be there sooner than we think. And absolutely, the point of our Upper Delaware Litter Sweep is to remove some of that trash from our lands and waterways so that they don't end up in the landfills and clogging up the systems. We know that people have been guilty of some indiscriminate littering out there along our highways and byways, and that's what we try to tackle through this program. It's the fourth year that we'll be doing it in 2024, and we've set the dates of April 20th through the 28th to consist of the two weekends surrounding Earth Day on April 22nd. That just seems like a great time to get out there after the winter and as well as preparing for our spring visitors to arrive and just beautifying our Upper Delaware River Valley region. Yeah, most people who live here are, are uh, very, you know, uh, respectful of the land and the environment, but there's still some of that litter that uh, gets thrown out there. Are you seeing more of it as more visitors come up? I think that will always be an issue. It's difficult sometimes to find the legal and proper way to dispose of trash, given that we have limited hours at our transfer stations and that there are only so many public facilities that one can go to. So that's something we're conscious of, as well as the huge problem there is with microplastics getting into the waterways. That's become such an issue that has probably always been a problem, but we're particularly more aware of it these years. I just want to let the listener know, I'm hearing a little uh, reverb of my voice, so that's uh, on the line here. It's not your radio, and we apologize for that. Uh, it is uh, uh, the uh, the eve of a big snowstorm, a big nor'easter coming in. This is not happening until April, but we're letting people know about this because you're looking for people to sign up to be litter leaders uh, soon. That's right. We The way that we operate the litter sweep is that the Upper Delaware Council is the coordinating body for it, but we really rely on each of our communities out there to find people who are willing to step forward and take on the role of litter leader, and that can be an individual, it can be multiple people, a group, a business, anybody who would like to take the responsibility for setting the dates and locations for their community cleanups. They also help round up the volunteers in conjunction with our publicity outreach, and they oversee the safety standards that are in place with the instructions that we provide, as well as just helping with the disposal of the material that's collected. We're hoping by February 20th or or the end of the month at any rate, to have these people identified so that we can start working with them. And when we're talking about the area that we cover, ultimately our ideal goal is to have cleanups that take place in every one of the communities along the Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River. That includes both sides of the river, New York and Pennsylvania, and 15 communities Specifically in New York, it's the eight towns of Hancock, Fremont, Delaware, Cushecton, Tustin, Highland, Lumberland, and Deer Park. 
And within Pennsylvania, we have five townships in Buckingham, Manchester, Damascus, Berlin, Lackawaxen, Shahola, and Westfall. So that's a lot of territory to cover, but we're hopeful that in the last three years, we've managed to find people who are willing to clean up in each of those areas. And if folks want to become a litter leader or become more involved, they can go to UpperDelawareCouncil.org. Is there another way to get more information? Sure. They could certainly call us at 845-252-3022, or our coordinator locally is our administrative support staff person, who is Stephanie Driscoll, and she could be reached at Stephanie at UpperDelawareCouncil.org by email. The Upper Delaware Council uh, it was established in 1988. Uh, you guys are a formal partnership of local, state, federal governments and agencies that join to manage the Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River through efforts just like this. Um, there's an article in last week's River Reporter, which I don't know if most folks know this, you are funded by a line item in the National Park Service budget, but there's never been an increase in funding ever since you were created in 1988. Why is that? That is very true. Uh, we are <laughs> established as a 501c3 organization, so essentially we're a charitable educational group, and our voting members are those towns and townships and both states that border along the river. The federal government through the National Park Service is our partner through a cooperative management agreement. But the way that it was established through a river management plan agreement back in the late 1970s was that we would be funded through 60% from the federal government and 40% from the states, meaning 20% each from New York and Pennsylvania. The federal share which was based on 1988 dollars, was $300,000, and each state would contribute $100,000 each for a $500,000 budget. Unfortunately, neither state has ever contributed a penny of that indicated funding, and the federal allocation, as you said, has been static at the same $300,000 since the inception. Clearly, in the world of rising costs to do business and just the inflationary decrease that takes place, that's not enough. And we have had to decrease our staffing over the years and also eliminate some programs and some regrant opportunities that we offer just to survive on those 1988 funds. And... It's amazing that in 37 years there hasn't been an increase at that from the, the states or at the federal level. So, you, uh, the UDC, hope to you know appeal to folks to you know reach out to their representatives. You placed a call to action on your website, but then you took that down. Why was that? Well, we have discovered that as a federal funding recipient, that there are certain regulations prohibiting lobbying. And the National Park Service solicitor determined that that was a lobbying activity that cannot be subsidized through the federal funds. We 
would be able to pursue campaigns of that type with unrestricted funds, meaning that the source of them was something other than the federal share. And therefore, that's difficult to parse out in our limited budget. So at this time, we've just decided to stay on the cautionary side of not running afoul of the uh, National Park Service solicitor. You know, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Lori Ramey. She's the executive director of the Upper Delaware Council, which um, manages the Upper Delaware River uh, on the New York and Pennsylvania sides on, uh, within the Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River area. So have you uh, been able to reach out to representatives yourself, uh, senators from Pennsylvania, New York, or federal officials? What we're able to do is to inform and educate about our situation It just can't be followed by a specific and direct request for funding or for any legislation that would lead to funding. That possibility of advocacy is open to anyone else out there who feels so inclined, but not to the UDC as an organization. So, yes, we are in touch with those offices, and our representatives on the federal and state levels are aware of the situation. It's very tricky because of the lack of direct commitment in the documents that formed us. It was established through an appendix to the River Management Plan, how the organization would be funded, but it was not written into the legislation. It's the spirit of it and the anticipated way that it would be funded, but that's difficult to legislate an intention. This must be frustrating for everyone involved. It is. Our board certainly gets uh, frustrated with trying to figure out how we can make people aware of the situation but stay within the lane that we must. (laughs) And Have you heard anything from the representatives uh, in New York or Pennsylvania about uh, any intentions to, to help or move it forward or increase funding in some way? Right. What we're looking at is we have support, it seems, from particularly from Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Fetterman and Casey. Their offices have been in touch And they're trying to look at the mechanism of it all in how we're funded as a line item through the local Park Service unit's budget, that perhaps if that could be adjusted, then we may be in a better situation or just building in an inflationary increase because that's much of the problem is that the federal government has indeed been reaching their commitment. They have provided their 60% share. There just wasn't anything built in to say each year that it would increase with the cost of living or a consumer price index. And of course, neither state having contributed is certainly a longstanding problem that we also reach out to our state legislators to inform them of that situation. In each case, the state of New York had signed an executive order, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is under a common code which supports all of the goals and objectives of that 1986 River Management Plan. And by that, we would interpret that to mean the funding as well. 
And the New York State Legislature is currently in the budgeting process. I know that there's a little bit of a delay in Pennsylvania, but is there any you know silver lining, any light on the horizon here, or you're just waiting to see? We are waiting to see. We only have so much influence we can bear to it, so we hope that the representatives for the River Valley will come through and understand our plight. They're certainly sympathetic to it. On paper, it sounds, you know, impossible that any organization (laughs) can exist on the same level of funding for nearly four decades, and it is becoming impossible. We actually had an independent economic study done about our fiscal sustainability into the future, and it was able to quantify back in December 2021 that within five years, and in fact, we're under that time period now, we'll be forced to reduce another full-time staff person because that's really the only discretionary area that we have. And how many people do you have on staff currently? Three. And you'd have to reduce to two? Yes, which would be extremely challenging to get anything done. Our board members are volunteers, essentially, so the three staff obviously run the day-to-day operations and administer and manage all our programs. We have an executive director, a resource and land use specialist, and an administrative support. But originally, the uh, plan called for five full-time staff as being a reasonable number to run the organization. I, uh, you know, we are also a 501c3 nonprofit uh, established in 1990. Just after you guys were established in 1988, we have certainly increased our budget in the last 30s plus years. I know we're not bound by the same conditions as you are as being part of this partnership with local, state, and federal government and agencies, but it just is really wild that uh, this has not happened. I don't think that you're able to say much more, but I will uh, say that if folks wanted to write to their representatives about this, then maybe they should. Um, So as we wrap up, Lori, let's remind people about the litter uh, sweep coming up, a way to volunteer and help out with this national treasure, the Upper Delaware River. In addition to the litter leaders that we're seeking, we also need volunteers who are just willing to go out there and pick up what they see. This is particularly a land-based cleanup. There are plenty of other river cleanup initiatives out there, so we focus on the properties that surround the most used highways as well as river accesses and public parks and areas of that sort. That's what our permits that we get through the Department of Transportation pertain to those areas specifically, such as along New York State Route 97, which is the Upper Delaware Scenic Byway. So we are doing our part to try to keep it scenic. We also, for anybody participating, we'll be providing a commemorative T-shirt with a brand-new design this year that is being uh, developed as we speak, and we provide the supplies, including the trash bags, the grabbers, safety equipment, such as helmets and vests, safety cones, that sort of thing. So we do fundraising for all of that because this event strictly relies on funding. We'll be applying for some grants, and also we welcome donations of 
money, goods, or services if people support this effort. All right, Lori Ramey, Executive Director of the Upper Delaware Council. There's more information about the UDC's work and also the 2024 Upper Delaware Literacy Week and how you can become involved at UpperDelawareCouncil.org. Lori, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. I appreciate the call. We'll take a break, and when we come back, Work Shift Live, local economic perspective from James B. Huntington. This is Radio Chatskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association, SullivanCatskills.com, Catskill Brewery, brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building, plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor, CatskillBrewery.com, and listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, it is generally not an easy time to be a university president. As a Jew, I was appalled. As a president, I was embarrassed. But Michael Roth of Wesleyan University doesn't seem to be having such a hard time. You can't please everyone, but I don't think that's an excuse to say nothing. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio, Tuesday at 1 p.m. on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill. To Bruno, and it's Monday, and Mondays we're joined by James B. Huntington, local author, local economist for his local economic perspective. It's Work Shift Live. Good morning, James B. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, listeners. Well, happy Monday to you, and I uh, wanted to jump in about the latest on unemployment news in our area what are what are some of the figures you can tell us yes we got quite a bit worse this time i don't know exactly why but december's numbers which are the most recent available we have sullivan county at 3.9 percent orange and ulster also at 3.9 wayne county at 3.6 and Pike County, 4.1%. The four other than Pike County each dropped, or they got worse, by mm, three-tenths or four-tenths of a percent. And how does that compare with the the national ones, again, if you can remind us? Yes, this is worse than the national this time. It's 3.5%. So the national was lower than any of these. We've had times for all or almost all, have been. (laughs) Yep. James? Yes. Okay, we got you. (laughs) Ones where the national have or have have not been as good, or the national ones have been worse than any of the ones in this area. All right. And um, do you need to take a little break? Should we come back after a quick break? Or, no, I'm okay. Okay, all right. Um, And then let's go on to uh, what's going on with Taylor Swift affecting the economy. Of course, it's the day after the Super Bowl. She was there. The Chiefs won. She's having a massive impact on economic uh, activity really around the world. James? James? 
Okay, I think we lost Jim James B. We'll try to get him back here. It's a quick break for us. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Kuzan Grace, KG, doing African American history during the month of February. Black History Month was originally created to fight ignorance and to prevent the continuation of misconception about black people and their history. So I'll be doing presentations on black history from then until now. So please check me out Tuesday on the music and poetry. Good news, everyone. Three late-night music shows debut on Radio Catskill this week. Virtual Soundscapes, Thursday night at 10. Electric Mountain, Saturday at midnight. And Ambient Barn, Sunday at 11. Plus, old-school sessions will be on earlier, right after Liberation Station. Four hours of club classics, funk, reggae, rap, and more with DJ Chunks and Selector Starkey. Now 8 to midnight, Saturday night. Great local DJ shows here on Radio Catskill. Yes, the real good news. All right, we're back with Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. We've got James B. Huntington back on the line. Real good news. And James B., we were just before we went to break, we were talking about how Taylor Swift has had a massive impact on economics. What can you tell us? Yes. Well, apparently, not only her suitability for popularity and her singing skills are working, but her strong business acumen. This article about the Swift lift that came out in Fox Business a few days ago. They're mentioning some of the things, the effects on areas which are having concerts in her era's tour, which has 151 shows on five continents. They're saying that the restaurant spending within each of these places is within two and a half miles of the stadiums are going up 68% on every t- on average every tour day, 7% even for restaurants within a 10-mile radius. We have some exceptions, some really strong numbers here. Kansas City was up more than 170% for their restaurants, and some others are in that same range. Then we have accommodations going up 47% in the immediate area of the stadiums and 32% even for 10-mile radius. Some real, have, some real eye-popping numbers there. Uh, according to economicimpact.net, the, the concert in, in Japan where she flew from Tokyo to Las Vegas, where she was uh, the other night, pumped $228 million into Japan, and $162 million of that went directly to Tokyo. A really huge impact. Um, what I, well, if you think about it, within, you have people, you have something like 50,000 to 100,000 people filling a stadium, huh? and they're out spending money. Even if they're locals, they're more likely to go to restaurants and People who aren't locals are going to need rooms and such. So there's a lot of it going on. And, maybe, and it's, it's awfully big when you add everything up here. It's huge. Um, one of the stories that uh, you wanted to talk about today, probably a little bit more up my alley uh, than the Swifties, uh, what are three signs it's time to apply for Social Security? Yes. <laughs> well, there are... A lot of people who are putting off Social Security because they want to get more money by waiting. They want to get higher pay, and there is a substantial amount here. So 
The three reasons I'm seeing here, and this is courtesy of USA Today, are number one, your health is declining. If it's getting worse, you may want to, for various reasons, want to take Social Security sooner than you had planned. Second, your expenses are mounting. If you're really running into trouble with money, it can be a false economy to wait longer if you really need the Social Security money soon. And number three, of course, you're turning 70. You have to apply it. If you're 70 and a half, you have to start taking it. So if you don't apply, if you forget or don't realize that you're going to be out some money and you may not, you probably won't get it back. So if you're soon after 70, if you really had your 70th birthday recently and you're not getting Social Security, you should apply. And, uh, of course, uh, you can apply at any point from age 62 up until 70. But, uh, again, uh, you want to make sure you pay attention to all of the different uh, meanings of the different levels of when you apply. More information at ssa.gov. Um, yes. Jim, we gotta um, before we go. I want to make sure we get in uh, all of the the prices and crypto and all of your numbers from last week. Where did we end up? Yes, well, these are comparisons with last week. This was early this morning. Gold two thousand twenty down two dollars. Really a slow week. It didn't do much either way. Silver twenty two eighty six. That's up forty four cents. It's better, but it's really still in the dumps. I mean, that could go up to 24 or 25 at any time, and that wouldn't be surprising at all. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, 38,672. It went up all of 18 points, better than it going down. But NASDAQ, 15,991, up 362. It seemed to have all the gain this time. So if you have a portfolio with a lot of different stocks, you did have a good week, even if the Dow didn't really do anything. Oil, West Texas Intermediate, 76.15. We dropped $6 last week, and we went up $5 this week. Pumps are confused. It's a good time to comparison shop for gas prices because there is a lot of variety out there. I know because I was driving around the tri-state area and I saw about everything from three fifteen to three sixty. Yeah, I noticed the same when I was driving around too. I was surprised about all the fluctuation there. Yeah, so a lot of stations will price it according to the most recent gas they bought and. Some bought it when it was low, and some didn't. So there you are. The mm. British pound, 126.17, down about six-tenths of a cent. They have economic problems more and more. The euro, 1.0781, up 12 hundredths of a cent. And they have some problems in Europe. I'm reading things about the U.S. economy comparing with Europe and China, and it's getting quite different. And the Japanese 100 yen coin, 67 cents. The same. It's hibernating. It'll be back, but it's not doing anything now. And last week, the, the S&P 500 closed above 5,000 for the first time ever. Um, do we think that's going to continue? Oh, certainly. I mean, it, it, we're in a very much in a bull market right now, and all three of these indexes are closely tied to each other. So... It, 
I don't know. I don't know if stocks will continue to go up in general, but the S&P 500 just reflects similar things to the Dow and the NASDAQ that I report on. Well, we will certainly check in with you again, although we're going to have a break next Monday for the holiday. So we'll have about two weeks uh, the next time we talk to uh, dive into. Uh, James B. Huntington is local author, local economist, and brings us local economic perspective every Monday with Work Shift Live. James B., thank you so much. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, listeners. Enjoy the holiday. All right, we'll take a break, and when we come back, Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, was this weekend, and we'll get a perspective uh, from our latest intern, our newest intern, Laying Tang, is a Chinese student based in New York City, and she will bring us her perspective. This is Radio Chatskill. You're on the go, and Radio Catskill can go with you. Listen live to Radio Catskill on your phone. Just type WJFFradio.org into your browser and listen wherever you are. Stay up to date on local news, culture, and NPR on the go on your phone with Radio Catskill. Hi there. This is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Lunar New Year was this weekend. 2024 is the Year of the Dragon, which symbolizes honor. Our newest intern at Radio Catskill is Laying Tang, a Chinese student based in New York City. She was curious how Chinese and Chinese Americans celebrate the Year of the Dragon here in the United States. And what's the difference in traditions when people celebrate the same festival in different countries? Here's Laying Tang. Hi, I'm Laying. I'm a current intern at Radio Catskill. I'm also an international recent graduate from NYU. I come from China. This is my second year celebrating my Lunar New Year in New York City. Last year, I barely paid attention to this biggest traditional festival back in my hometown. I just texted my parents on WeChat, Happy Lunar New Year, and that's all. But this year, I'm curious. How do Chinese and Chinese-Americans living in the U.S. celebrate their Lunar New Year? What's the difference? I interviewed two friends of mine in the U.S. One is Chinese, from northeastern China. The other is Chinese-American. I come from Shanghai, which is a big city in the southern part of China. Let's see how our traditions in Lunar New Year differ from each other. When Chinese mention Lunar New Year, the first thing that comes to people's mind is New Year's Eve meal. When I was in Shanghai, my mom usually started to prepare for this meal two weeks before New Year's Eve. It's the biggest meal for Chinese people in a year. I think in my family, it's usually like around eight. That would be like the big, like the big dinner, right? I think that's kind of like a common thing that happens every episode. 
This is my friend Yiming Bian. She is Chinese, and now she is having her senior year at NYU. She tells me about the food tradition in her hometown Dalian, a city in northeastern China. After the huge dinner, both starving and dumplings, even though everybody's just so full, and the dumplings are usually going to be served around midnight. And we'll put some used to be coins, so which means you're going to make a lot of money in the new year. We stopped doing that because it's not clean, it's not hygiene. So we we changed it to like raisins and nuts. I think it's a tradition that I cannot kill. I feel like dumplings have such a like symbolic connection to the Lunar New Year. I cannot even imagine if I celebrate Lunar New Year without eating dumplings. After coming to New York and living here for almost four years, Yiming sticks to making dumplings from scratch. She rolls dumpling skins, makes fillings, wraps, and boils them all by herself. She enjoys the whole process of homemade dumplings. However, it's hard for her to find the same ingredients here, even though there are a lot of Chinese immigrants in New York City. And I realize that a lot of immigrants are actually from the southern part, like from they speak Cantonese. So the ingredient is quite different because the fillings that we put inside are very different. So it's kind of difficult to exactly repeat the dumplings I had at home because we have those like the pickle cabbage. It was kind of like a popular filling. I cannot find it in the supermarket here, so that will be a huge problem. Wendy Li is another friend of mine. Her father is from Central China, and her mom is from Northern China. They moved to the U.S. before Wendy was born in 2000. Unlike Yiming and me, Wendy is a Chinese American and grew up in Boston. Now she works in New York City. I'm curious how Chinese Americans celebrate this Asian traditional festival in a foreign country. When I was younger, my parents would put on the like、um, Chun Wan, which is like the national celebration they put on television in China. They would play it from a computer and live stream it somehow, and we would watch it. I think back then there was like more cultural tie to that show. And then as I got older, both my parents like were making more moves in their career, got more busy. My dad does not have the time to live stream anything now in the middle of the workday, because、um, he didn't get the day off. Most of the time, my mom will be like, "Oh, it's Lunar New Year. We should cook something." And then my me and my dad sort of don't really care. So slowly throughout the years, the traditions have sort of just diluted to the point where it's just my mom making dumplings or it's just her making fish for the night. Then I asked Wendy if she has some memories when she once celebrated Lunar New Year back in China. My grandma got me a little lantern, like one of those paper lanterns that you can get from like the grocery store, and I hung it up like near my bed. And my cousin broke it while I was sleeping, and I woke up and I started crying. The only thing I remember is that she broke my lantern, <laughs> so I held it against her for like a year. As a Chinese growing up in China. Yimi has a lot of memories related to Lunar New Year back in her hometown. We eat a candy called Zao Tao, which is literally like oven candy. I know it sounds so strange, but I think it's just made of wheat. The adults give the candy to their children, and the children eat the candy. And the candy is so sticky they cannot open their mouth for I would say at least two minutes. I think my parents always said, "Don't curse, don't say bad things towards other people. It should be a blessing." As a Shanghainese, it's also my first time to hear such an interesting Lunar New Year tradition. In Shanghai, we have universal traditions as other Chinese people do during Lunar New Year. We visit relatives and send red packets with money to each other. We wish everyone good luck in the new year.
But to be honest, we don't have much of a Lunar New Year atmosphere because there are few people in the city. Most residents in Shanghai are immigrants from other parts of China. In Lunar New Year, everybody goes home. The city is quiet. I would say the atmosphere of Christmas is much stronger than that of Lunar New Year, but it's totally different in Yiming's hometown. There's a lot of people because people are coming back to visit their families, like their parents or their grandparents. In my hometown, the fireworks are so loud, gone completely deaf. I can't hear anything. And you know, hear my mom calling me. I can't hear my grandma talking to me. Aren't hear the fireworks just going say outside, and. The next day, you step out, you see all those left, like the red wrappers. You know, when you have a firework, those those are like the red papers on the ground, and those are like red carpet on the snow. The air, it's so it just smells terrible. I used to hear firecrackers in Shanghai as well, especially on the fourth day of the first lunar month. It's the day when people welcome the god of wealth, but the fireworks cause serious air pollution. Since 2016, fireworks have been banned in Shanghai during Lunar New Year. The same thing happened to Yiming's hometown as well. I would say two years ago, and they banned the firework in the downtown area of my hometown. So I don't know what happened because I haven't coming back for a real long time. We have face we have FaceTime each other during the Lunar New Year, and my dad's like, "I'm so not used to this. Like this is so quiet." <laughs> Wendy also can't hear firecrackers in Boston because it's also illegal in Massachusetts. In Boston, it's for sure illegal, and I know some young boys who are like high schoolers and middle schoolers who would cross the border into New Hampshire, where you can buy them legally, and then set them. They would set them off in the summer around Fourth of July, and I, a good amount of them that I knew were Asian American, but they would only set them off around Fourth of July and not Lunar New Year. This year. Yiming, Wendy, and I all celebrate the Lunar New Year in New York City. There are many festival-related activities happening here, but we have complicated feelings about them. I wouldn't say like I'm I'm very excited to see those activities because, as I said, I think they they mostly like Cantonese culture, like wushu, like the lion. I saw that、um, in Brooklyn last year, and that was my first time. Seeing that performance because that's from the southern part of China and I'm from the northern part of China. Those are so different because I feel like those like so Chinese culture, but very exotic to me somehow. My experience in a lot of cities growing up in the U.S. is that Lunar New Year is kind of marketed as like a diversity moment by companies, institutions, schools. Anybody who can get an organization together and say like, "Oh, there's gonna be a lion dance and there's gonna be some dim sum, so we're gonna be inclusive of like how people celebrate this." There's it's an excuse to nod towards a minority group and also to get some free food. I don't actually know how many of the traditions are passed down to me by family. It's more that I've been told by people at institutions that this is what I should be celebrating. So. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know how. Now that I think about it, that's kind of sad. But weirdly, no matter how we think these traditions don't resonate with us, feeling unreal or cliched, we are connected with each other because of these things. It forms our brand new Lunar New Year experience. 
I love to learn because um, I never celebrate Lunar New Year anywhere else except my hometown. I never had the experience to know how Shanghainese celebrate Lunar New Year or how Cantonese celebrate Lunar New Year. So that's kind of interesting to see those. It did give me a good excuse to bond with other Asian Americans and bond with other people and hear about how other people are celebrating. And so it was me also learning like where I fall into the diaspora and where I fall into the experience. I think it opened itself up to that. This year, I will join my Chinese friends' party to make dumplings together. As a Shanghainese, I never eat dumplings during Lunar New Year. In the end, I can't escape this biggest Chinese tradition. So here I am, making dumplings. I wish everyone a happy Lunar New Year and good luck in the Year of the Dragon. 新春快乐,龙年大吉! Tang, our new intern here at Radio Catskill. Good job. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. February is Black History Month, paying tribute to the generations of African Americans who struggled with adversity to achieve full citizenship in American society. Some of those stories are inspiring and some are very challenging. Michael J. Warden is an award-winning true crime author, retired law enforcement officer and author. His book, Lynched by a Mob, tells the painful but true story of the 19, sorry, 1892 lynching of Robert Lewis in Port Jervis, New York. The book won a gold medal in the true crime category of 2023's Independent Publisher Book Awards. Jason Dole spoke with Michael Warden on the local edition. Yeah, so earlier in the day of June 2nd, um, a young local woman, white woman named Lena McMahon, had been sexually assaulted down by the river around noon in broad daylight with witnesses. And uh, Robert Lewis was identified as the perpetrator. Um, He had left town on foot, and he was tracked by friends and neighbors of Lena's, apprehended in Huguenot, New York, about 15, you know, miles or so away, not even, and was brought back to Port Jervis with the intent of turning him over to the local police. Um, Outside the jail is where the men with their prisoner pulled into a mob, and essentially the mob took control of Robert Lewis. And from that moment on, it was just a scene of madness and violence where Attempts were made to lynch him immediately, um, and when that failed, he was dragged, often by the rope around his neck, and beaten and kicked and subjected to just a horrific level of violence before finally being murdered. And this happened in Port Jervis, New York, about you know about 130 years ago. Can you talk about this story in the context of... Uh, how most people might associate lynchings, especially lynchings of African Americans, as something uh, you know that happens more in the South. Can you can compare and contrast these stories and those connotations that we may have about uh, the history of lynching? Absolutely. So the South, especially around the time of the 1890s, had the reputation of using lynching as a form of terror. And how, you know, to reinforce their racial segregation laws and to maintain their own African-American population in what they would consider, you know, good behavior. The North, it was much, much more rare. And the North took pride in this sense of sophistication versus their, you know, brutal brethren in the South. Well, after the lynching, um, an interesting phenomenon is seen in that the Southern newspapers have a field day with the North basically, you know, saying the North is 
so much better than us. But yet, when it happens to them, when a young white girl is, you know, sexually assaulted by an African-American man, they resort to the same level of justice that we do. Um, so, you know, the North found it to be insulting to themselves that, that they would dare commit this act in the North and the South just saw it as, see, people are people and you did just what we would do. Um, you know, it's also the response in many instances to, uh, you know, accusations of assault on white women, even when they were they there was no basis to them. I mean, there's a long history of that as well. Oh, absolutely. Just the mere, you know, accusation in many cases would be more than enough to have an African-American man lynched, um, in particular in the South. Here in Port Jervis, you know, I'm pretty confident based upon my research that Robert Lewis was guilty of the crime. However, there seems to be some mitigation in that it may have been set up by a white man named P.J. Foley, who had been a sort of failed suitor of Lena McMahon. So Robert Lewis may not have been assaulting her in the sense that he was intending to assault her, but having relations which he was told she likes it rough. Weird. Um, well, so was have you researched contemporary regional reactions to this it sounded like you're talking about how people were reacting you know in in the north were there what were the reactions of people port jervis new york state new york city uh, you know around the region so locally especially within the orange county the adjoining counties the reaction was one of sort of a mixed reaction because almost all of them would decry mob violence you know judge lynch as they referred to it that you know, we live in a society of laws and that we can't take the laws in our own hands. It's despicable what this mob did. But then in the same newspaper articles would say, but, you know, the punishment for sexual assault is very weak and he got what he deserved anyway. So really no harm, no foul. So they're, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, so to speak. They want to condemn Judge Lynch, but then justify it because he was guilty and sort of got what he was had coming to him. So how did you come to this story to be, to, to be looking into this and, and interested enough in it to write a whole book? So it's, a, it's something that's always fascinated me. Um, ever since I, I learned about it many years ago, my grandmother uh, used to talk about it because her great aunt, Mary Jane Clark attended to Lena McMahon in the aftermath of the sexual assault. My grandmother then had heard this firsthand many years ago. So my grandmother kept these clippings from 1980s when there was a little bit of a resurgence in information about the lynching. And she told me in her very serious you know, tone, Michael John, I think you should write a book about this because you'll do a good job. And Michael John, John's my middle name. When grandma uses the middle name, it's a commandment. And she was right. I said about it. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this uh, unpleasant, uh, but uh, uh, unpleasant aspect of local history, um, because it does resonate with with uh, what we're seeing in the present, which is the whole point of looking at history. So, thank you so much for talking to us. No, thank you for having me on. Jason Dole speaking to Michael J. Warden about his book "Lynched by a Mob." You can find more information about that at Michael J. Warden. 
dot com. And next Monday, a special edition of Witness from the BBC World Service in place of Radio Chatskill on President's Day holiday. Uh, Witness Black History Month. We'll hear interviews looking at the African-American experience told by people who were there. We'll hear stories that are fascinating, harrowing, and inspiring. That's next Monday at 10. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, streaming online live at WJFFradio.org. This is Radio Catskill. A winter storm warning is in effect from midnight tonight until 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon with heavy snow expected. Accumulation 6 to 12 inches in New York and also in Pike and Wayne counties, northeast Pennsylvania. Travel could be difficult and snowfall rates could be 1 to 2 inches per hour at